You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas that are shaping our patterns of consumption for the better. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Amit Gupta, welcome to the show. Thanks. <laughs> it's good to see you. Um, yeah. You are in Honolulu right now. I, uh, I'm jealous. I, I want to come and visit you at some point. Yeah, please do. <laughs> Is that your full-time place? You were in San Francisco for a long time, and then you were traveling all over the place. Yeah, I, I think I want to find a home base, and I think that was the plan for 2020. But as we know, 2020 derailed many a plan. And so I ended up hanging out with my parents, going there early in the pandemic to help out a little bit. And then I came out to Kauai for about six months, and then I've been here for a month, and we'll be here for another couple of months. I have a few friends who are living in Hawaii now, and so I have an excuse to come out. And now that I'm yeah. fully vaccinated, I, I just need to get myself over there. Yeah, you do. It must start getting hot at some point, but there's also good like uh, winds and stuff. It stays pretty pretty cool. It doesn't get crazy hot. Yeah, it's uh, it's like 80, like low 80s, high 70s all year round. So it's perfect. And yeah, there's wind. No one has air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think back to when we first... Matt, and I think I didn't actually meet you for a long time, but we were sort of working together through your company, Photo Jojo. Yeah. I think it must have been all the way back in either 2010 or 2011, because Photo Jojo was, I think, the first retailer of Inkodai. Oh, cool. (laughs) The first product that I worked on. I just always loved what you were doing with that company. I saw on your website that you linked over to the XOXO talk that you did. That was it was it almost felt like the final chapter of like that whole kind of phase of your life. And I was there in person for that. I hope people go. We'll put a link in the the show notes because we're going to (laughs) skip right into some of the stuff that you've been doing now. But it's it's fun to think back. It's been 10 years of entrepreneuring and doing things in the world. Yeah, it's been really cool to see Lumi grow and thrive in that time and, and transform too just been super cool. Yeah. What am I remembering this correctly? Was your mother also working at Photo Jojo or someone in your family? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. My mom, mom in chief, uh, worked for Photo Jojo from year one and she continued working for it after I sold it. And I was only with the company for six months after I sold it. So I think she actually worked for it for longer than I did. I'm I'm just remembering that because I'm remembering emails <laughs> like she yeah. was heading up operations or something, purchasing product. And it was just uh, that was just a funny experience. Yeah. I tell people it brought me so much closer to her because I feel like it's always hard with parents because you have like growing up, you're struggling to like find your own identity, find your own space. And I think there are things about her that I didn't that I carried into adulthood, like being annoyed by or whatever. But working with her, I grew to appreciate those same qualities because they were so helpful in a business context. Well, earlier in my career, I worked uh, closely with like a family business and I could see they had their whole family worked for this furniture company in LA that uh, Jesse and I worked with quite closely. And it was like father, daughter, uncles, friends of the family. Like, and it just seemed like you were really, when you started to work with them, you were really starting to get some insight into their (laughs) dynamics. And I feel like that could also be a struggle. How did did it work out well to have your mom as as an employee, basically? Yeah, it worked great. I mean, I feel like we had such luck with all of our employees. Uh, I feel like I really trusted everyone and everyone just had the company's best interests at heart. But I mean, it was true of no one more than it was for my mom. 
I felt like I could count on her for anything. I always knew if she was doing something, nothing would drop through the cracks. I don't remember very many instances where things went awry or like there were tensions between us because of the company. I think if anything, it just made our relationship a lot stronger. One of the things that I think is so memorable to me, Photo Jojo, I think really your personality and the personality of the team really came through. And I think that that personality, I I don't know how to describe it. It's just an aspect of kind of humor and curiosity that I think has followed you or you've created it all along your career, following just seeing what you've been up to. And I want to go into uh, your new project, which I've actually never said out loud. And I've always thought just reading it says pseudo right, but my nerdy brain goes sudo right. And I don't know if anyone <laughs> has said that to you, but there's a command on computers, which is pronounced sudo that is uh, the same spelling. Well, that's funny. I always pronounce that command sudo. So that's how I pronounce sudo right. But I guess it is sudo because it's super user do or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Explain what sudo right is. Yeah, so Sudorite is an app for creative writers, and it uses AI to help you get out of writing blocks and kind of keep in creative flow. And why did you call it that, by the way? Well, we actually had a writers group that preceded this called Pseudowriters, P-S-E-U-D-O writers. And we called it that because we were all getting started in like spec fiction writing around the same time. We had a bit of imposter syndrome. And so we were like, oh, we're not quite writers yet. We're like pseudo-writers. And then over time, we were like, you know, now we're like published in all these different places. We've gone to these prestigious workshops. We're still calling each other pseudo-writers. Let's change the name. It's like hard to spell. We're like publishing, you know, self-publishing anthologies and stuff. and People can't find the URL. So let's call it pseudo-writers instead because we're all like kind of tech adjacent. Some of us are tech founders. Some of us still work in tech. And pseudo is obviously this command that has like meaning to a lot of people in tech. So we call the group pseudo-writers. And then James and I, he's another person in the group, and he's my co-founder on Pseudorite, started tinkering with AI for writing, and we built this tool, and we were like, what's it going to be called? And Pseudorite just seemed like the perfect name. So now we have this confusingly common name for both our writing group and for the product that came out of it. I love that, though. I <laughs> Even just the homonyms and all of it, it's very nerdy, and I love that. And I didn't you know, really realize that you were kind of going down this path of focusing on writing. But I remember a dinner we had like, I don't know, it must have been four or five years ago. And it was you and your girlfriend. And we were talking because at the time, I was also in my spare time writing a little science fiction kind of graphic novel story thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh And and I think there was something there that was brewing at the time. And I didn't realize how far it had gone until recently. And so now, how do you split your time between writing and, and starting this new company? That And that graphic novel thing, was that like an epistolary thing? I feel like I remember there being like a letter writing component to it. Yeah, it was It was basically, it's sort of like a RPG, like Dungeons and Dragons turned into a book. Awesome. <laughs> um, but I never, I always wanted to, I, I've got a lot of sketches because I, I learned how to draw from industrial design and I have a lot of concepts for the various characters and ships and vehicles and places that are in the story. But just knowing myself, I would not be able to like really do justice to my own <laughs> imagination unless I spent like the entire time. So I've been looking kind of on and off for a graphic designer or artist to illustrate or to work with. That's kind of beside the point. But <laughs> yeah, that, so if that anyone's a, listening, and, yes, <laughs> and they want to help illustrate this thing. 
yeah, it's a fun story. But I think that at the time, we, I felt like I was just sort of brainstorming and chatting with you. But then you've gone on to to write some short stories. And w- tell me about what you've been up to on that side. And yeah. Yeah. So I think around that time, I I wasn't writing yet, but I was playing around with AI. I think I was like learning Python again, as I do like every two years or something for something I need to install. And I don't remember how to do it anymore. So I was like playing with TensorFlow. And I think it was maybe like a half year or something after that, that I started writing more uh, originally nonfiction. And I gravitated towards science fiction specifically because I read so much of it growing up. I mean, this is not unique to me. I feel like so many in our generation are inspired by the science fiction we read growing up and wanting to like create the tech and create the amazing things that the science fiction depicted as we you know, came into our adulthood. And so many of the things around us are, you know, smartphones and the rockets that we're sending to Mars, hopefully soon, and all the self-driving cars, all the stuff that's like happening today or going to happen in the, hopefully in the near future came out of these science fiction authors' dreams of what, you know, the future could bring us. And I love that. I think it's so inspiring. And then I see how dystopian science fiction has gotten in the last, I guess, like five or 10 years, especially. And it just really saddens me because we make what we can imagine, right? The things we see around us, the things people talk about, that's what's infiltrating our imagination and that's what drives us to create. And if this next generation just sees a future that's dark and sinister because of technology, I can only imagine the kind of future that that will lead us to. So I'm really hopeful that I can at least be one voice of optimism in this landscape of science fiction. That's kind of one of the reasons I got into it. Yeah, and is it, do you think it's, I think it's older than that, this like dystopian thing. I think, I think it's, if you look back, I don't know, I think maybe 80s, early 90s is when there was a turning point. I think like the Terminator era is when things started because there was definitely the 50s, 60s kind of like very aspirational, like Epcot kind of like (laughs) version. Um, And even before that, you could go back to like the World's Fair type of environment and the Eiffel Tower and Tesla, the, the yeah. original person Tesla, <laughs> um, kind of coming about. And there was a lot of optimism. But I think there was also pessimism back then, too. If you actually kind of like look into the stories, people were pretty afraid of electricity and, and all those things. <laughs> yeah, I think, it, I think you're right. I think it was more balanced somewhere in the 80s and 90s because I remember like Back to the Future felt balanced. Like there was, this technology wasn't the evil force, humanity. If there was evil, right. it was humans. And like same with Jurassic Park, like there was definitely a turning point there where we started to see like, oh, maybe the technology can be a horrible force, but it was still like these humans used it in the wrong way or like we're had hubris or whatever. Yeah, I think whatever you saw science fiction, I think we saw a more balanced perspective. Truly, you're right, though, back in like the 60s and 70s in the space age and so forth, where the, we had this like golden age of science fiction, everything technological was just like assumed to be good was was different. Um, but now I think we're on the side where like everything is technological is kind of by default assumed to be potentially evil. And I wonder how much of that is that scary stories are more compelling sometimes, you know, than just plain happy stories. I remember when they made the the film of um, Tomorrowland. Do you, I think they were like trying to do... Mm, yeah. I think they were trying to turn all of their like the lands of Disneyland into movies like Pirates of the Caribbean had done so well they were going to be like Tomorrowland. And it was um, 
the one with, I think, George Clooney, and it was very forgettable. It was trying to be optimistic, but there was it was missing that dramatic component. So from a writing standpoint, is there a part of the kind of like drama of these scary <laughs> dystopian stories that attracts us to them? Yeah, maybe. I mean, it is difficult even to find utopian fiction, like truly utopian fiction. And I think maybe there just isn't enough distress, enough tension, enough drama in those stories. I think there's always ways to find it. There's always ways to find like human drama, even within worlds that are otherwise pretty optimistic and people have done it. I hope that it's not the case that we're just as a species drawn to turmoil and darkness and so forth. Because I think there have been times when that's not been the case. But we are, I, I do think that like, we're attracted to the things that we're used to consuming. So the more that we consume of a certain type of content, the more we're drawn to that same content. Well, and I think that some of the optimistic sci-fi out there that people think about, like Star Trek, had a very humanistic point of view on the world and kind of the prime directive and all of that. I think that spirit maybe has gotten lost from sci-fi these days. So there's that angle. And then maybe there's something about how capitalism has become such an important topic of conversation almost in in the public almost every (laughs) sci-fi movie these days has some sort of like evil corporation at the center and that's not new either i mean that was in terminator but that's in in almost every story there's something like that that's that's the driving force behind what's going on i mean jurassic park the same way and i wonder if people are also thinking it seems like this is where it's leading us. The logical conclusion of where things are going with technology and capitalism is like, this is the end goal. But there's all these other avenues that I feel like are not being explored of where the future might take us. Like we're very, very focused on this one idea, it seems like. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the messaging earlier on, like even in the personal computer era, was really about personal empowerment. The technology was going to let individuals be more creative, be able to do more on their own without like larger organizations or groups. And there's already at that point still like a very like anti-establishment vibe, but the personal computer technology wasn't, wasn't like a totem of that, wasn't signifying that. It was more about people being empowered. And maybe that's changed a little bit. Maybe the power structures have changed to the point where now we see technology as empowering corporations rather than individuals. It seems like there's always something that is like in the public consciousness, something that is a major fear. We've been going through this pandemic, uh, which there's been many sci-fi stories about pandemics in the past. And now kind of just, I think, over the past decade and increasingly climate change is kind of at the center of everyone's doomsday scenario in, in their mind. But on the other end, I do think there's a lot of optimistic technology that is trying to solve those problems or trying to go in that direction. Yeah. And there's there's an idea of maybe, you know, humans are problem solvers and and there's something optimistic about that that it doesn't seem to be as explored. Where does your mind go when you think about optimistic futures? Yeah, good question. I still believe in the personal empowerment of people through technology. I definitely do. And I still believe that all of these tools have good and bad sides. And I think communication and like understanding can definitely be increased through the tools that are increasingly available to help us connect with each other. Um, Even stuff like VR, where I think we're not quite there yet, but I see a lot of potential for empathy creation and understanding through tools like that. The same way that 
books and movies and really well-written stuff can help us understand each other better and understand other humans. I think VR can go a step beyond and really help us feel what it feel like to be another person, be another person's shoes. Yeah, I think like in, in every medium, every kind of thing that we do, the more senses involved, the more technology involved, there's potential for more connection and understanding. I wrote a story that came out last year that it was about like a futuristic version of Buddhism where you used something like a VR helmet basically to experience an entire lifetime within moments. And so instead of going through the death and rebirth cycle on earth over and over and over again until you reach enlightenment, you could do it in this virtual environment and experience like hundreds of thousands or millions of lives within your single earthly existence and reach enlightenment. Who knows if anything like that will ever be possible, but I think that if we can dream it, we can at least try to create it. And I think there's there's stuff like that all over the place. What Can you give the name of that story? Oh, it, the name of that story is How Did It Feel to Be Eaten? And people can read that online. There's also like an audio version of it. Yeah, yeah, they can Google it or maybe I'll link to it or something. How do you think about short stories versus, you know, novel length things? Are you getting warmed up for a, for a something bigger? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. I feel like um, I don't really read a lot of short stories. The ones I've read, I really loved, but it's like the ones that people have told me to read, not ones that I've like randomly found on my own. When I read, I generally read novels. And so I think I'll probably try a novel soon. My hope is to find a character, find a storyline, and find a world that I'm excited to explore at length and then dive into something longer. That said, I really just care about reaching people with optimistic stories about the future. So that may take other forms too. Like maybe it's audio, maybe it's video. Maybe one of these stories gets turned into something bigger that's on like a streaming network or something. I have no idea where it goes from here. I'm just open to where it could go. Well, I... I have to say, I love short stories and I'm always looking for more. I think it's underrated as a format because yeah. you can get straight to a concept so much faster. And a lot of sci-fi in particular, some sci-fi suffers from like poor character development because yeah. the the author is really a nerd and is trying to explain this like interesting scenario or concept, if you can find sci-fi that has great characters, that's, you know, a double whammy, which is amazing. Yeah, I think it's such a playground for philosophy. What are some of your inspirations in that respect? Um, I'll recommend a novel and a short story. One short story I often point people to, because I think it's a great example of the kind of form that you describe, where it's very short, but leaves you kind of thinking for a while afterward, is a two-page story by Andy Weir called The Egg. And that's also freely available online. I don't want to spoil it. And it is like literally two pages. It'll take you like five or 10 minutes to read it or something and really think about it. But it leaves you thinking afterward, makes you think of the world in a different, through a different lens, which I love. And a novel that I really love that I've reread probably three or four times now is called Replay. It's by Ken Grimwood. And I'll tell you just how it starts. The main character is like a 40 something who works in radio, I think. So he's wearing headphones and has a microphone in front of him, just like you do, basically. And he keels over, has a heart attack, and dies at his desk. And that's how the story opens. And then he wakes up, and he's, I think he, I want to say he's like 18 or 19. He's has a college. And he relives his entire life. And, of course, he, like, you know, bets on the right stocks and the right horses, gets mega rich, does all the things, uh, chooses a different partner because he wasn't happy with his partner at the beginning of the story. 
And then he relives his life again and again and again and again through the course of the novel. And so you discover like all these different paths his life could take, all these different things he thought he wanted and, you know, whether or not he really wants them, we find out. And yeah, every time I read it, I'm just, my mind is blown. And I just remember all the possibilities this world has for us and all the different ways we can live this life we have. And I leave it inspired to try to do something like what he's done, both in writing and in this main character's life, like live a life that full. I feel like that's a uh, fantasy that I also have. There's so, so many paths that are possible. And I can, especially because I consider myself more of a generalist, like I always imagine what would it be like to take any of these different interests to its like logical <laughs> conclusion or something. Yeah, totally. <laughs> we need something like a a black mirror that is optimistic. I, some, someone needs to figure that one out. Yeah, I <laughs> agree. That can be you. Yeah. So with PseudoWrite, we should explain uh, a little bit about how it works. Now, the way I understand it, it, it is powered by GPT-3, right? Or is it? are you doing some extra magic as well? Uh, both. Yeah, so it's the underlying core technology is GPT-3, and we use some different models within GPT-3. We do some like pre- and post-processing of input and output. So there's like more than just the direct engine, but that's the one we're using now. And we may bring in other models in the future to to enable different features. Explain what GPT-3 is for people who don't know. Yes, sure. So OpenAI is a company slash nonprofit. I can't keep track of what they are now, but uh, an organization (laughs) um, that has been working in this space for a while, developing kind of like large models uh, to do text generation, image generation, all sorts of other stuff. Uh, And they've been like really at the front of at least like the developer and user accessible stuff. I'm sure like Google, Facebook, Apple, or maybe not Apple, but all of these companies have like really robust and interesting projects of their own, but they're all shrouded in mystery. And OpenAI has provided access to the public and talked about the stuff they're doing. So they released this large text transformer model last year, I think last year, called GPT-3, orders of magnitude larger than the previous version that they had, which was also pretty impressive. Uh, my co-founder James started to play around with it first, uh, just to see like what he could do in terms of just like fiction writing. And I think a couple of our friends, like Robin Sloan, has been working with AI text generation and AI writing for quite a while using different models. So it was in the back of his head and my head too, like what can you do with this kind of stuff? And what he found, what James found really early was like you could create some very very interesting work with this, and it was way better than what we had before. The model is trained on basically the entire internet. So it's taken the common crawl, which is like Google's index, but like an open version of it, of like every website, every YouTube comment, every Reddit comment, but also like every like, you know, meaningful blog post, tons and tons of books. And it's read all this and tried to determine like, given a set of words, what word should come next or given a paragraph or, or, you know, a chapter or whatever, what should come after this? And it's developed like a, a model on what words should follow other words. So basically, you can feed it some text at a very basic level and say, what comes after this text? And GPT-3 will try to predict that. I think there's some demos out there at Beyond um, Pseudo, right? OpenAI is just really good at creating these super shareable blog posts where they explain what it is that they're doing with these new tools. And so if anyone hasn't um, checked these out, I would I would highly recommend it because they're they're really amazing. And it's an in an area that there's so much improvement. It's like 
every month there's something new and interesting that's happening in this general area of using how do we take in lots and lots of data, whether it's writing or imagery or videos and like train computers to understand what we expect out of that form. And and it's just it's just really incredible. And one of the things that it's also good at is trying to not only predict what the next word should be, I think it's actually trying to predict what's the next character. Uh, yeah, token. Yeah. And it's also trying to um, allow you to sort of shape the output in some way that matches, I guess they call this style transfer in other forms of machine learning. Like you could say, you, people may have seen this with like, you can show an image to one of these models and it'll paint it like Van Gogh or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, or Picasso, or, you know, people are playing with these things on their cell phones now. You can, it's basically how these different like face app type of things work yeah. uh, in, in the background. But how do you do that for writing? And how can you give it some direction around the style of writing that it should be? Your tool is designed for writers, but how does one use it to try and navigate the possibilities and tell the computer or tell the model what you want out of it? Yeah, sure. So since we've been playing with it for a while, we've kind of figured out the strategies in crafting the prompt to get at what we want to come out of it. So some of that we've productized within Pseudorite. So at a very basic level, you can use a feature that we call wormhole, where you take a bit of text that you've written and we go into the multiverse, find five other versions of you who are going to write what comes next. So we use GPT-3 to do that. And it's following your voice, following the plot you've written so far, following the character arcs, you know, the setting, everything else, and also your style. But we also have different kinds of ways to adjust that. So you could make what comes next more ominous or more whimsical or more whatever it is. We have tools where, you know, one of the things people often struggle with with writers is, is describing something well so people can picture it as they're reading it. So one of our features is we can select a word or phrase, uh, hit the describe button, and then we'll give you a slew of suggestions for how you could describe that thing using any of your five senses, so sight, sound, smell, everything else, uh, and also some metaphorical, kind of more poetic descriptions. And some of the stuff it comes up with is, is really insightful and interesting. Some of it's random and makes no sense, but a lot of it is, uh, is really useful. So that's like, again, not writing for you in that case, but just giving you kind of like ideas for where to go. And a lot of what we're doing is not trying to like replace writers because it's just not good enough there for one but augment them and help them to get that first draft out more quickly, help them get ideas when they're stuck. So a lot of these other features too are based on that philosophy. Like how can we accelerate this process? How can we make writing more fun, feel less isolating? So many other creative processes are collaborative and writing is very solitary. <laughs> Going back to pessimism and dystopia, people do, do seem to not quite get that use case for some reason of like the augmentation of of ourselves. And one of the ways that people are maybe are interacting with this, is, I think everyone has anyone who has Gmail probably now has these features where as you're writing, it will start to suggest the next word. Um, and it's really incredibly good. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the team that runs that is is run by Ray Kurzweil uh, is what I've heard, who's famous futurist who's talked about the the singularity stuff. But that one's just trying to kind of get to the next couple of words and 
there's so many things that we're trying to say on a day-to-day basis that are extremely predictable. Like, yeah. hey, I'm trying, <laughs> please see the document that's attached or, or yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah. And so that's easy to predict, but that's super helpful. I use it all the time. It saves me a ton of time. How are people using this for creative purposes? And why is that notion hard to grasp for some reason? I mean, you it's a really good example you bring up because I don't think anyone wants to spend their life making meeting appointments, right? That's why Calendly exists. And no one wants to spend their life like making sure to type like see attached document below and making sure the document's attached. Like that's we just recognize those as tasks that are like not very creatively fulfilling. And I think if you look at all these other creative art forms, whether it's like music or photography or whatever, you see that the tools we've had for those art forms have evolved very dramatically over the past few years. If you look at music, like to perform and to record like a piece of high quality music, you know, decades ago, just required so many people and so much equipment and so much time and effort and learning. It was almost completely inaccessible to somebody new coming into the field. You had to spend years kind of getting to that point. And now you have kids who are discovering tools available on their phones, recording music, uploading it, and like having millions of people listen to it within the space of like weeks or months or whatever. And I think it's because the tools have gotten so good. They've made this previously like esoteric art form very accessible. And I think there's fear there too. I think as those tools have gradually gotten better, I think probably musicians have become worried that this is this is something that's going to eat into our living. It's going to like make this thing very easy that we've spent all this time investing our skill and our life into getting better at. And that's of course understandable. The other side of it is it's going to make all this drudgery that we spend all this time doing every time we want to record a track go away. So we can focus on the song we want to write. We can focus on the art form that we want to create. And I think that's where these tools are really powerful. When they take away the please see attachment, attached document part of the part of the work and they let us focus on the thing that really brings us alive and the thing that we actually want to do and the reason why we're doing this in the first place. So I think we're going to see that with writing too. I think tools like this, uh, unfortunately for writers, I think tools have been kind of stunted in development compared to photography and, and you know 3D modeling, music and everything else. We've basically gone from like pen and paper to the typewriter to the word processor. And it's basically the same process. But I think tools like this can really help us get our ideas out more quickly, help us tell the stories we really want to tell and tell them in a, in a compelling way, in a way that a lot of us wouldn't have been able to do before. And the ones who could do it, I think they'll have more fun doing it. And I like the idea of being able to go into the multiverse, like <laughs> like you said, just sort of roll the dice and get something that feels like you on the other side of it that just takes you in a slightly random direction. That, that notion of writer's block as like one of the problems that you're trying to solve here is really fascinating because that is something that everyone encounters. Anyone who's ever written something encounters that. But if your profession is <laughs> to be a writer, like how do you navigate that? We haven't really thought of that as a as a problem to be solved, maybe. Yeah. And I think we there's so many like kind of uh, physical tools for that. Even for writers, there's like decks of cards you can use or like oblique strategies or like sure, dice yeah. you can roll to like kind of like jar you into a new way of thinking. So we kind of know that that's something we need. And if you have a writing partner or something, often that's what you're doing with them. You're like kind of saying like, I'm stuck here. This is what's happened. What should happen next? And you're hoping that they'll come up with an idea adjacent to where you're going, but maybe something you just can't get to in this moment. 
So I think the tool can do stuff like that very easily. It can, we have this button called what if, so you can take a scene that's kind of stuck and it can give you a series of ideas. Like what if this happened? What if this person did that? What if you did it there? And a lot of them won't make sense, but some of them may, you know, inspire an idea just the way you know, tarot cards will inspire you to, you know, live your life a different way or see a relationship a different way. Cause you read meaning into it. How, how have you used this tool so far? Uh, I've definitely used it in terms of getting unstuck with wormhole, especially if I'm like pantsing instead of planning. So some writers like outline very diligently and, and write that outline. Some people kind of write by the seat of their pants. So when I do the latter, wormhole is really useful. I've also gone back and revised stories. Like I, I wrote a story about an, um, an Indian American entrepreneur living in San Francisco. And I got some feedback on this story after it's finished that the character, the main character was kind of flat. And I used Sudorite after that to get some ideas for how to flesh out that character and give her some more life. I hear some music in the background. Hopefully it's gone. <laughs> how has using it as a tool informed how you keep sort of pushing the tool itself? Like, what's that relationship between using it, sort of dog fooding it as a writer yourself and making this tool what's the interplay between those things how did it inform features i mean you've described some of these features which i'm guessing came from using it but how do you think about that yeah i think that sudora is pretty good at a few things right now and there's like a bunch of stuff that we've played with in our like labs that is crudely working but not quite working as i write i think it's helping me get out of a few of the places where i get stuck but there's always more places to get stuck. So when I get stuck in those other places, I'm like, oh, okay, how, how could this tool potentially help here? Also, you know, James and I are building this. We haven't like incorporated it. We haven't taken financing yet. We've been through like the startup rodeo both in the past. And I think we're trying to be very mindful about how we want to do it this way, this time around. And that's informing the product development process too, because I don't think we want to be solely driven by like hyper growth and trying to get as many users as possible, which means that we are building stuff like a poetry tool that James built recently to help you help you make poems about ideas you have, which is never going to make a ton of money because there's so few living like poets making a living through poetry. Uh, they're not going to pay like a monthly fee. The cham is small. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's like, it's really cool. It's like, it does what it's supposed to do. And he found like a, you know, like a prize winning poet professor to like look at these different samples that Sudorite was generating versus like living poets. And like, it was very hard for her to tell the difference, like which was which was like, okay, we got this working pretty well. But yeah, mostly it's just trying to figure out where we're getting stuck, where our users are getting stuck and, and where we can help alleviate those things. That's a fascinating question about you're at this intersection now again, <laughs> where two lives are ahead of you, one where you, uh, you know, really turn pseudo right yeah. into this big product and one where you continue to be a writer and pseudo right is sort of this hobby project that is, you know, trying to solve your own problem, but not really trying to solve the problem of everyone who's a writer in the world. Yeah. Yeah, I, I see the problem. <laughs> I don't know what the solution is. Um, I, we talk about it a lot. Um, it's not a problem. It's just an intersection. And now you have a choice to make. <laughs> do you go? Yeah, I think we know what we're going to do. Uh, it's It remains to be seen whether it will work. But I think we're going to continue to grow it, largely spending half of our time on it on average. And we'll probably hire people who are in the process of potentially raising money and 
yeah, I don't know. We're going to try to navigate this like very like liminal space between real startup and hobby and see how far we can get in that space. One of the things uh, when I think about the total addressable market of your tool is when GPT-3 first came out, it was so, and this was what, like a year and a half ago or two years ago, something like that. So recent, um, right? When did it first come out? Am I... I don't even know. So I, I, I became aware of it in 2020, but I don't know exactly when. Yeah, June, June 2020. Okay, so not even a year. Um, that's amazing. There was this comparison that was made. I don't know if you saw this to this concept called low background steel. Basically, since the advent of nuclear bombs, uh, I, I'm not going to describe this in the right uh, physics terms, but all the steel uh, since after 1945 has been like irradiated with like very minute amounts of radiation just because of the, the nuclear explosions that have happened in the world. And so there's a very small amount of steel that exists like basically in like submarines that ha- or in boats like under way underwater that don't have this contamination. And people have to go and get this steel out of the water if they want to make certain kinds of devices that are like oh. radiation sensitive. That's so <laughs> like if cool. you're making if you're making like a Geiger meter or something like that, you have to like go down to the bottom of the ocean and get some steel to make those tools because otherwise wow. you're getting these like and so the question was basically proposed which is like are we now at this point in 2020 because the the model that GPT-3 was trained on is hopefully mostly human generated. But now we're creating all of this like possibility of like, your addressable market is not just humans, it could be computers, like your address, like computers, if they want to write things might use something like pseudo write or GPT three. So you might have just this explosion. This is the fear going back to some dystopia that there will be hundreds, thousands, millions more content being created by computers than machines. And now we're going to lose like whatever was the special sauce that we had in the beginning. Yeah. So like, the few, <laughs> well, actually I'm really interested about the steel. So I have one question about the steel before we get to the, the yeah. dystopian future. So there's a limited supply of this steel on earth. It's very hard to get to. I assume it's like very expensive. Does this make it like a new asset class, like gold that just gets more and more valuable over time because it's declining in availability? I guess so. Yeah, I, I I don't really know enough about it to say, but there's there's a limited amount of steel that has not been you know, does not been contaminated, um, and it's like in these like remote places, like underwater, and I don't know, maybe other places like in that that can be mined or something. Okay, so your question is like uh, currently there's very little computer generated text. Uh, around in the future, there's more and more of it. So maybe future models are trained just not on human text, but also like computer generated text. And there's some like computer contamination in those models. Yeah, it's a fascinating question. I don't know how you think about, do you think about non-human users of pseudo right? I guess is my question. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't, I haven't really thought about that at all. Um, I definitely know that a lot of the other companies using GPT-3 are using it in a way where like, the text that's generated is output immediately to like users or whatever, but it's like ad copy or or like website copy or whatever, like small snippets. And so we we're kind of like the black sheep that's generating like large amounts of content, but it's all having to be edited by humans before it sees the public. Yeah. Would computers use a tool? Like it, I feel like they would potentially use something like GPT-3, but I can't imagine them using Sudorite, at least not in its current incarnation because it's so like, built to guide human hands to craft 
a piece of writing. Like it's just not made for automation. And I think you just build a very different tool if you wanted to automate that. Uh, past guests, I forget the episode, um, the band Yacht were on Well Made and they um, put together an album that was the lyrics, the music, the video were all kind of composed with AI yeah. assistance. And I love that idea that this can take us into a multimedia direction. Someone could write a script, a movie script with pseudo write, and then <laughs> use whatever the equivalent tools are on the vi visual side and on the audio side to kind of put something like multimedia together where you're really starting to have this, I don't know, multimedia machine that can take your dreams and somewhat make them real, that you can kind of shape them in that direction. That's a fascinating idea. Oh, yeah, 100%. By the way, they're users of Pseudorite. Um, oh, good. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I totally see that as our future. I think that like movie making is going to be transformed and I can totally see people going from scripts to actual production in a tool that's combining all these different media. And I think like we're excited to start with writing, but I think there's a lot of potential for developing tools like this for each of these different verticals and combining them. I love that idea of combining them like I I really love music, but I'm not a musician myself. I, I would love to be able to sort of like direct my own creation, video music writing creation, where I'm just sort of like navigating this like set of brains, these computer brains towards something where I know enough to say I like this, I don't like that. Yeah. And kind of if you can if you can take that. I remember, um, I think this was an interview of Quentin Tarantino saying <laughs> the only thing that you need to be a, a film director is to have opinions about things because like you're surrounding yourself with specialists who are really good at all of these different things, costume design, you know, photography, and you're just sort of saying more like this, less like that. Yeah. And that's kind of what you're doing with, with pseudo, right? Yeah, totally. And I think taste is super, super important. I think if you look at even other mediums outside of movie making, like so many artists, sculptural artists like Warhol and uh, Coons, they're using like factories full of artists to create their work. They have a vision. And that, like you said, they're using these other brains and these other hands to help them execute on that vision. And the same is true for every TV show you watch and a lot of books, actually. And I think tools like this can help bring that whole studio of people into like one place where an individual can have access to that same kind of uh, brain trust. Yeah. And so your job becomes like you're managing the cohesiveness of this whole thing. Like somehow it needs to make sense. And and pseudo write and these different tools, as you me just mentioned earlier, like the, the output of it doesn't necessarily make sense. You have to create the sense out of it. And so it kind of creates this new level of abstraction in creative work that sounds very fascinating like you can sort of abstract yourself from having the actual skill to do some of these things or or can you do you still because it's it's working off of some sort of body of you, you mentioned like the chapters you've written so far can it can it read all of that and then you start a completely new story it's not going to keep any of the characters but it's going to keep the style in which you like to write or something like that we can't do that yet. We can't uh, have it subsume something you've written before and then start a new fresh with nothing. Um, but you can start with very little. You can We can help you come up with the plot. We can help you come up with characters. And as long as you get the fire started, we can keep it going and grow it. Do you think it's something that um, people will get 
good at? What does it mean to be good at pseudo write? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, definitely. I think it's going to be a skill. I think working with AIs will be a skill across creative fields. Um, and I think we've already seen that. Like being a photographer today isn't just about going to the dark room and apertures and and you know using film cameras. It's about a whole mess of other tools. And the same is true for video to an even greater degree. And the same will be true with writing. I think working with an AI, figuring out how to execute your vision, figuring out how to get the specific ideas and tropes and like character traits and whatever, using a tool efficiently and well and creatively is going to be a big part of writing. Who are some of the other uh, creative people and, and creations that you've seen come out of PseudoWrite that you've been excited about? Yeah, so I there's some work that's been published, but probably other work that I just don't know about. And I think the most exciting thing for me has been people subverting the tool in interesting ways. So like we have this character generator that's just like, give me a few examples of characters in your story and I'll, it'll give you like a bunch of ideas for other people who could inhabit that same world. And we've had users take that tool and instead of putting in people, they put in uh, different mythical creatures or made up fantasy holidays or whatever it is. And then the AI will create a, like an endless series of made up fantasy holidays or poisons and spells. And then how you're, how do you make them and who they affect and how long they take. So I love when people subvert the tool to find interesting new ways to support their writing. Going back to that idea of low background steel, there's also this big concern about, um, bias in AI, right? Because you're, 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 you're giving this, some body of work to work off of. How do you not fall back into, you know, archetypes or things that just sort of lead you down a path that's already been trodden? So GPT-3 is unique from other models that OpenAI has built in that it's not trainable. Um, at least so far, it's not trainable. You work with what you have out of the box, but it's very quick at de detecting your patterns and detecting your style and voice and mimicking it. So we've been in this interesting position where opening eyes a little timid about what we're doing because we don't filter a lot of the output. We, we do a little bit of filtering and we let people flag stuff when there's something that's come out of it that you know is harmful or offensive or somehow toxic so we can take a look at it and tune it. But it's like very lightly filtered. And the reason for that is, unlike ad copy or unlike some of these other use cases, you might actually be writing a character that's homophobic, or you might be writing a story about you know Nazi Germany, or you might have something going on in your story that's like really toxic and terrible, but it's within the context of your story. Currently, the way GPT-3 is built, you're going to get out what you put in. It's, it's pretty rare that you will put something in and get something out completely toxic and harmful that has no relation to what you've put in. Well, I want to I want to zoom in on that that little uh, thing that you mentioned, which is that there's a I guess maybe a difference between creative writing and something like uh, copywriting, and you're you're more focused on on the former. But could someone use it for you know putting copy on their website? What what are the maybe design decisions that you're making that influence it more towards writing or 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 not? I mean, creative writing. Yeah, you certainly could use it. And some people do use it for nonfiction writing. We have a rabbi who's using it for sermons. We have 
uh, people who are using it for like D&D campaigns. We have all sorts of people using it for different creative and, and kind of like nonfiction uses as well. And so you could certainly use it for website copy. You could potentially like give it some examples of website copy you like and then tell it that you're creating a new website and tell it what it's about and ask it to create those same examples and use wormhole or something like that. And it would give you the same. So yeah, you can totally do that. I, I tried that with our the about page for Lumi. I put in the about page <laughs> and it was telling me about um, some like um, nonprofits or something that we should support. And I was like, that's a good yeah. idea. <laughs> yeah, it's making was, the world better. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, that, that was good. I think I applied for the beta, but I haven't actually gotten my hands on on the tools that they give you for for using GPT-3, being on the developer side, what is it like to interact with it uh, as a tool? Like, are you, is it just an API where you put in some, some text and it spits something back out and it's just that simple or how much customization do you have? Yeah, probably a better question for my co-founder, James, since he's doing more of the back end, I'm doing the front end. But yeah, it's just an API. You have some customization in terms of like how quote unquote creative the responses are. So you can kind of like you have a slider in terms of if you go all the way down to zero, it's being very uncreative and trying to give you factual answers. And on the other end of the spectrum, it's, try, it's going to go all over the map. So if you ask it, what's the capital of the United States, it'll give you Washington, D.C. on one side. On the other side, potentially, it'll just make up something that it thinks is funny or interesting. So for our purposes, we're very high on the creativity side because we're not usually looking for factual stuff. We're looking for creative responses. And there's other stuff you can tune in terms of like how repetitive the responses are, how if there's certain words that you don't want it in terms of filtering, you can have it run it again and again until it gets responses that don't include them. I would say a lot of the creativity though is in the prompt engineering itself. So not so much the parameters, but figuring out how to write something in such a way that GPT-3 will give you what you actually want back. What's your feedback to OpenAI? And like, what is it that you want as a tool maker out of it that you're not getting yet? Actually, they've been super supportive. I'm really happy with the way our interactions with them have gone. I think they've also been very careful, uh, which makes sense because, you know, people are afraid of this stuff and they want to they wanna walk carefully and not be canceled. In our app, particularly because we provide so much text back and we're trying to be unfiltered so it can be useful to writers, that's been a, a constant kind of like back and forth. Like, how can we give writers more control while still allaying open as fears. So I don't have a recommendation for them really, but one of our challenges has been pushing to make it more open, pushing to let more people into the product while still making an open AI feel safe that this is something that isn't going to somehow blow up in their faces. Yeah. One of the things I've, I've heard, I have, don't have very much direct experience with this, is that in general, AI is very costly if you're running your own TensorFlow and all of that kind of stuff, you, it, it's quite um, computing uh, intensive. And you've managed to make PseudoWrite pretty affordable. I, I mean, I guess rephrasing my question, um, how much does it cost to use GPT-3? Is it affordable? It's expensive, for sure. We're definitely losing money on some users and making money on others. And I think that as we go forward, we'll probably have to invest more and more effort in optimization. So even GPT-3 has like four different levels or maybe actually more now of the quality of the model that you're accessing. So we usually use something called DaVinci, which is the highest end model. 
which costs like 10 times more than the next one down, basically. And we use that because the the bigger the model, the better results we're getting, and we really want to provide the best possible results. A lot of the other tools are using something further down the spectrum because it's way, way cheaper. And if you're generating small bits of text, you just don't need that like high-end model. So I think over time, probably we'll do more with pre-processing inputs and outputs to get some of the work done with cheaper engines. May not, maybe not even GPT-3, but other stuff that we're hosting ourselves before we go and do the high cost work through DaVinci, through GPT-3. But yeah, it's quite expensive. I don't know what the actual pricing will end up being for the product. I think we're going to try to preserve the pricing or honor the pricing that we gave people in their original beta period for as long as we can. But I think we're still figuring out how we actually make this a viable product given the expense of the API. Yeah. And hopefully that'll the API will come down in cost over time. I'm sure that that will happen over time. I imagine there'll be competitors. I feel like uh, AWS and Google will probably have similar or comparable engines at some point. What's the sci-fi story about pseudo, right? Where does it go from here? You know, five, 10 years from now, what are the things you can imagine it being able to do that it can't do yet or is not even close to being able to do? Yeah, well, the thing you mentioned earlier where you can go from story idea to like finished movie in like a tool, I think it's just like a fantastic vision. And I would love to be able to create a tool that lets anyone do that. I think it'd be amazing to help all these people who know they have a novel in them or have a book in them to actually get that book out. And I think today it can help with that process, but it's going to get better and better and help people along all the different points of that process, all the pain points. I don't really know. I mean, like you were talking about Google Autocomplete. There's this book written by this author, uh, William Hurtling, called Avogadro Corp. I don't know if you read it, but I have not. Avogadro Corp in this book is basically Google, and they have this product that's basically Gmail, and they build this autocomplete engine for it, just like Google is built for Gmail. And this engine is basically, its purpose is to help you write more persuasive emails. So not just finish what, you're, what you've written, but just like make it so that it's more impactful. And it goes amok. And somehow it's able to like start hijacking everyone's emails accounts and writing emails to from one human to another and basically takes over the world in the process of doing this because the whole world runs on like electronic communication. But it like negotiates peace treaties between countries that have been at war for like generations. It like solves the energy crisis. It like does all this amazing stuff because it's just able to impersonate one human talking to another and like help them actually like find the optimal solution and does this within like weeks or whatever because it's just like sending thousands and thousands or you know millions and millions of emails. So maybe that will happen from Sudaray. Who knows? Like, it's so hard to predict what the future will bring. <laughs> well, and th- this is the classic uh, sort of uh, thought exercise of the paperclip optimizer that people talk about with AI. And actually, there's a really good game if you want to. Did, have you seen this game? I think it, is it. It's called Universal Paperclips. Have you ever <laughs> played that? It's a game that's. I would highly recommend. I think you can probably finish it in like a few hours. And it's super basic. It runs in the browser, but it's a, it's actually cr- kind of a storytelling game where you're oh, cool. you're basically building this AI that is a paperclip optimizer that's trying to take over the universe. What you were saying before about that kind of idea of creating this suite of tools, it, it does make me think about, 
I mean, I've been an Adobe user my whole life of all of their different things from, you know, like the Premiere to Illustrator to Photoshop, etc. It's just so, such a fascinating idea to think, what if those tools were actually like creating things for you or with you as opposed to just sort of being, I don't know what you would call it, but just an, an extension of what your current capabilities are. Yeah. It makes me think about Everything is a remix, which is came mm-hmm. out, I think, at the same XOXO that you spoke, yeah. uh, the series by Kirby Ferguson. And that is kind of what most art and creation is at the end of the day. It's, it's you taking different pieces that you've liked. There's, there's so much uh, of movie making and writing that is just sort of the composite of your experience of the world. And I love that idea that you could somehow take those ingredients and turn it into something new with, uh, without having to know all of the disciplines. I think that's such a fascinating idea. And what would the tool that lets you do that look like? Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And I, I think the closer you can get to that directorial experience, the better. So I think if you really were able to work with best-in-class cinematographers and best-in-class you know, costume designers and everything else, screenwriters you would say, here's, here's this idea, here's what I want to create. And like, you would work with them collaboratively throughout that process. And you would uh, communicate what it is you wanted to see in the costumes. And then they would come back and show you what they came up with. And some of their ideas would be better than yours. Some of them would be out of left field. And you'd say, let's go in that direction. And you'd kind of work to get to what you had in mind, or maybe something better. But you wouldn't be like dictating it. You wouldn't be saying, like down to the, you know, the button or whatever, where stuff is going to go. You'd be expressing more generally and then choosing. And I think a tool that allows you to do that with any creative discipline would be so powerful. And if you could do it without pointing and clicking or without like dragging and swiping, but like through voice communication or something or some other me- some other way to communicate with it, that would be super interesting too. Did you happen to watch the, um, there's a documentary about how they made The Mandalorian? The no, Star Wars, uh, the Mandalorian is this big Star Wars series on D- Disney Plus, but they have a making of, and one of the unique things about how they shoot that show is that they built this like new technology, which is like this virtual physical space where you're basically standing completely surrounded by these screens, and they'll position the camera such that it's rent it's using uh, i think it's using unreal engine in the background but it's basically a video game in the background wow <laughs> and the way they move the camera it only makes sense to the camera but like the background is is constantly recomputing and making it feel like you're in that place um and and the, the behind the scenes footage of it is really really incredible I, I, there's even just i think if you look up um ILM um on YouTube you'll see like a 10 minute version that explains They've productized it to try and sell it now as a technology, which it, you know, for other movies and TV shows to use. But it, the way they pitch it, kind of like, is so fascinating because they're saying basically it's a in the background it's a video game, so you can choose what time of day it is. You can shoot at sunset for ten hours straight. You don't have to right ten. <laughs> you can have golden hour for an entire day because you can kind of create this environment. If you want a tree to be exactly at this place, you can sort of just drag it and drop it. And I think about that as kind of like, I don't know, all of these kind of creative tools kind of merging together and allowing us to kind of have a lot more control. It seems like maybe, I hope that the output of that is that we have more different kind of stuff come out, like that that maybe it it enables like people who have more out there ideas, more unique ideas to create their vision and like stray from 
whatever the norm is, that would be the hope. Yeah, I think that will happen. I feel like that's happened with photo and video. Like when camera phones didn't exist, it was pretty rare for people to have high quality photo equipment, even rare to have high quality video equipment. And the explosion of formats and different types of entertainment and media that's come from everyone having access to a video camera in their pocket has been boggling over the past few years. And the types of like, you know, the stuff you see on TikTok, like the specific types of videos, the like mm. the trends that come up and down, the stuff that people create is so imaginative and so quickly changing. I imagine we'd see the same sort of stuff with film and with everything else as those tools get easier too. There's a great YouTube channel called Two Minute Papers that I really highly recommend that is by, I think the, the guy who does it is a professor in this area of um, artificial intelligence and is basically highlighting these things that are really at cutting edge, the brand new papers in AI. And a lot of them have to do with writing, graphics, audio processing, audio generation, camera, like machine learning, trying to understand what's in a, a scene and trying to allow people to modify those things, all the kind of area of deep fake. All of this technology is just kind of like evolving so rapidly. It seems like five to 10 years from now, we'll have some really incredible and hopefully affordable tools. Yeah. I'm really curious to see where the deep fake stuff goes. Because on the one hand, I'm like, you know, Photoshop's been around for a while. And of course, you can like create Photoshop's of people doing things they weren't doing. On the other hand, deepfakes seems kind of scary, like the idea that you could really pretend to be someone else or put someone into a situation that you know they shouldn't be in. And we see already so much of that spreading around on the internet. It makes me wonder where that goes. Like, do all official videos then have to be like cryptographically signed or something? So if like Biden has a video and it doesn't have his like authorized signature on it or something, do we just automatically assume it's fake? Or there's some other mechanisms for guaranteeing authenticity in the future where it's easy to make a video of anyone doing anything. I, I, I think there's going to be a period of a few years where there's going to be a lot of weird stuff. But then I do think we'll figure it out pretty fast. I, I'm actually pretty optimistic about that. I think that ultimately the, the use cases on the more creative side seem like they will way outweigh the like nefarious ones. Yeah. But I'm an optimist. <laughs> That's why I like to have you on or we had Kevin Kelly on a couple of times who was always talking about his like optimistic views of where things, these tools will go. Like it's easy to imagine the dangerous scenarios. For some reason, it's hard to imagine the positive ones. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what do you think are the positive ones? Do you feel like you have a sense of that for deep fix? I mean, when you watch things like the two minute papers, they'll show things that are really basic, like... There's this choreography of people dancing and you just like download that, then take, you know, your actor, put them together. And now you've got your actor doing these like dancing or stunts or, you know, some other thing. Like, how can you help people avoid putting them in dangerous situations or how can you enable them to do things that are outside of their capabilities in a creative context? If I want to hire my friend as an actor for this like small film that I'm making and he doesn't know how to do kung fu i could put his face on <laughs> some like stock library of kung fu and and now it you know it comes together much more nicely and the the thing that's great about deep fakes is that something about the animations are just so much smoother than anything that you see that is hand animated like there's something about how facial movements and body movements are so complex. They're just very hard to do unless you're doing like mocap type of stuff. But then it's, it's harder to synthesize useful output from that. 
if, if that makes sense. Yeah. People are doing all kinds of interesting stuff on TikTok. What if they just use this for creative purposes? Yeah. Allowing themselves to do all of these interesting <laughs> moves and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I think AI and all of this stuff is super interesting. I wonder how customized media becomes in the future where it's trivial to change things to our tastes. Obviously, you know, even just listening to a piece of music on like a car radio versus like a hi-fi like earphone or something, there's a very difference. There's a big difference in the experience. But I wonder if like in the future we'll be reading the, reading the same novel or watching the same movie but seeing different things or slightly different things based on, I mean, the obvious thing would be like based on where we are geographically, because that already happens. Like Hollywood will release different versions of movies for China versus the United States and versus other countries. And that's happening like to a greater greater degree. Scenes will be cut out. Characters will be changed. Like, you know, a lot of differences uh, actually exist already. But when you can start whittling that down to smaller and smaller audiences and eventually to an audience of one, does the media we consume become hyper-personalized because AI can just do it with a trip out of future compute? Um, and then what does that mean? Like, are we just, are there no shared experiences in media anymore? I think this is just going to be a pendulum. I'm very excited about that idea that you just described. I can see how yeah, me too. The, the side effects are that, yeah, then you have no shared media. But even today, there's a lot of personalization and we do still, there are still these moments like, I was watching this big basketball game on Friday, the <laughs> Lakers and Golden State Warriors playing. And there there are these things that we do seek those common experiences as well. And I think the more things will become personalized, the more the shared moments will become important. When I listen to audiobooks, my experience of audiobooks is so different based on the narrator. Uh, some of them, I, I find the, narr- the, the, uh, the reader to be just not my taste at all. And it completely yeah. throws me off of listening to that audiobook. book. Um, yeah. And I, I would just like pick up the paper version instead. And so what if that was just so easy to switch because we get to really good deep fake voices and you have, you know, a roster of people that you really enjoy. And now, I mean, I don't, I'm sure that that will come in the next 10 years. There'll be a way to like listen to audiobooks that you can basically choose the voice. It seems not so removed from what we already have with Siri. Just kind of take it to the next level. Yeah, I really love that. And it also in some ways feels like a, a return to the past where, you know, a lot of our entertainment was plays that were performed regionally by different troops that were all customizing it to the specific region they were performing. And obviously actors, actresses were specific to that region. So like, even though you're watching a play that had been performed all over, you're watching your specific version of it. Uh, and that's still true today, but it was much more true before. And I like that you could choose your own narrator. And maybe my narrator is going to make all sorts of like cool sound effects and stuff with their mouth while they're doing stuff because I like that. But yours is going to be super serious or something. Or is it Jamaican, <laughs> Jamaican accent or I don't know. I don't know. They they might. Yeah, I think. Well, that's the hard part, right? How do they uh, modify doing the different voices of different characters? We'll probably figure something out about that at some point. But yeah. Then if you have this version that you really love of this thing that was made just for you, how do you uh, get someone else to listen to it? That'll be a problem to solve at some point. Yeah, yeah. I do think you're right, though. As we have more and more customized, personalized experiences, we do crave the shared experiences, too. And that happens already today, I feel like, with so many TV shows that are available to us, so much media that's available to us. The, like, prime time stuff has gone away. But now there's these, like, 
you know, flagship shows yeah. on each of these streaming networks that we all end up talking about because we want to share that stuff. I think that's a very natural human thing to just say, hey, did you see that thing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that probably happened since the beginning of, I mean, just animals in general. Hey, did you see that thing? Yeah. <laughs> and I think <laughs> that that is, uh, I don't think that's going to go away. Um, Amit, this was Amazing. I, I honestly would love to keep going for another three hours with you. Um, but for the for the sake of the listener, we'll cut it here. And I would love to do another episode with you because I could just riff on the sci fi thing forever. Uh, <laughs> and I'm and I hope people go and check out how did it feel to be eaten and pseudo right and find you on on Twitter. Uh, Super Amit. Is there anything else we should point people to? No, that's great. And if we have a sign-up form for the beta on Sudorite, if they say they found it on this podcast, we'll bump them to the top of the list. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you so much, Amit. And uh, I hope to see you in Hawaii soon. Yeah, awesome. Sounds good. Take care, man. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was. Consider writing a short review could be just a sentence long by going to iTunes and searching for well-made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks and see you next time.